Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with casting director Stephanie Yankwit. Stephanie's a casting director and co-founder of TBD Casting Co., a New York-based, female-owned casting office. Recent New York credits include work with Soho Rep, Theater for a New Audience, Page 73 Productions, and Atlantic Theater Company. Recent regional work includes La Jolla Playhouse, Indiana Repertory Theater, and Arena Stage. Recent theatrical highlights include the Broadway production of Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune, starring Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Fairview. Film credits include work for Lexicon Films, 4th and 1 Films, and Seder Entertainment. TBD Casting Co. casts regularly with the Independent Film Project, Culture House, Playwright Center, and Tectonic Theater Project. I was so excited to have Stephanie on the podcast because she has so much experience in theater, film, and television, and I absolutely loved our conversation. We talked about self-tapes and how finding the tone of the scene is probably the most important thing for both stage and on camera. And when you're in person, the casting director can help you find the tone, but how do you find it when you're making a self-tape? Stephanie's answer is particularly helpful. Hearing Stephanie talk about how she finds actors, then makes lists of actors for a role, is incredible and eye-opening. She helps me understand just how creative casting directors actually are, and how their work is essential to the development of a new play. Stephanie has an incredible story of how she got to where she is now, from director, to casting, to producer, to interim artistic director, then back to casting with her own office. Stephanie's journey is inspiring to say the least, and I think it's a story all of us need to hear. I think it's her experience in all these different parts of the industry that make her a casting director that everyone wants to work with today. So without further ado, my conversation with casting director Stephanie Yankwit. I am here with Stephanie Yankwit, a casting director who also has her own office. And I'm actually not here with her because we're doing this um, remotely given the time that we're in. Um, but Stephanie, I'm so happy to be chatting with you today over, um, over the interwebs. Same. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. We are in, you know it would be hard not to talk about the, the tricky time that we're in right now and how it's affecting all of us. Um, actors are making self-tapes sometimes, kind of. A lot of offices, casting offices are doing um, generals right now. And I'm wondering, what is your life like right now? What, what, is your, um, what is your office up to? How has this affected you? And, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, it is a very tricky time and, and a lot of things are just in flux. Um, we w had signed on to do three plays in a row for La Jolla Playhouse and those plays were supposed to start, they, the rehearsals would commence um, June 1st. And right away when, um, I was actually in San Diego um, when the shutdowns really started. So I was I, I had flown into San Diego and the next day I was walking in to these auditions. And, um, I got a call from Soho rep who we cast for. And, um, the producer there called and said, we're canceling Wolf play, which is, um, a beautiful play. We had just cast that was had maybe in their third or fourth day of tech. And, um, wow. she, yeah. Um, Marope Pepinides, um, our producer said we have to cancel. Um, and we wanted to let you know. And I looked up at the producer of La Jolla 
was looking at me and I said, that's probably what's happening here right now too. And Jacole Kitchen, who's the producer there, just looked at me and, and nodded, yes. And so then I walked into this room of auditions for five hours. Oh my um, gosh. And like on breaks was, was, you know, changing my flight to get home. Um, because I was afraid that if, if I got sick, I'd be stuck out there for, for weeks, you know, and um, I had not planned on that. So um, it was interesting to be in that little bubble uh, of, of auditions while this was all sort of happening. It was really actually kind of nice because we were able to just ignore it um, for a few hours. Um, and um, the play I was in auditions for is a play by Kimberly called To the Yellow House. Um, and so that was the play that was supposed to commence on June 1st. And almost immediately they pushed to June 30th. So they already started with um, uh, pushing their dates. Um, and then um, have just been sort of abiding and following the guidelines of California. And of course, California is in a very different position than New York. And San Diego is in a very different position than, than you know, Los Angeles, for example, or San Francisco. So. Right now, so so we had these auditions planned for the end of April, these New York invited auditions. We had them planned for mid-April, I should say. And so we stuck to that. And I can talk you through how we did the auditions. So um, we ask a bunch of people to send in tapes. And then I share those tapes with the creative team. And then the people who we decide to call back, um, I have advised that we get on a Zoom um, and just have the meeting with the actor. So we don't ask the actor to do the callback live over Zoom. I do that for two reasons. One, I just think it puts too much uh, pressure on technology to work. And if it doesn't work, that audition is just ruined. Like there's no way to recapture that. And also just the timing of trying to um, dialogue with another human being on Zoom is so choppy. And I just think it's hard for the actor. So, so it's hard for the actor. It's hard for us. It's not going to give us 100% of what we want. So if we focus these meetings on just meeting the actor, talking about the role in the play, talking about the process, and then the director and writer have a chance to give some notes on what the, that actor's first tape was, then the actor has the agency to go back and retape and send it in. You know, we give a deadline for a second, a callback tape. So on the one hand, the actor has more agency and has more time and, and is able to do it on their own time. On the other hand, there are plenty of actors who are in the moment, they don't have the resources to retape. And so I always then call and offer if, if I can help in any way, if that actor needs to get on with me and I can record a Zoom um, to, to help them if they need help with the retape. So that process is what we laid out for, for this play. And we went through that process. Um, and, and now, on the other side of it, we're looking at a major time change. And so this goes to the real thing, the heart of, I think, one of the hardest parts of all of this is like um, availability. So much of what we do is determined upon actors' availability and what we call avail checks. And that's like, uh, you know not a possible, it's not possible to know anyone's availability anymore. Um, and so these entire set of auditions were predicated on an idea of these dates and those dates have all, are all um, changing. So I've let the agents know. I'm now waiting on La Jolla to confirm the new set of dates, which of course will also be, you know, dependent on what happens in the near future. And then we will try and make some offers with the new dates um, based on based on actor availability. Right, which is probably very open right now. <laughs> it is and it isn't, right? Because if you're an actor and you're recurring on New Amsterdam and you're heavy recur on New 
you don't you don't know when that show's picking back up. And so, but you can't necessarily promise yourself out because you know the show just got a, a three season renewal, right? It just got picked up for three more seasons, so you know it's going to happen. And I think that is really hard for actors to navigate. It would, you know, it's hard for all of us to navigate. How do you say, yeah, I'm going to be available to go to La Jolla from from December 1st through the end of February and not know when that show is coming back in? So anyone who had a show, essentially that show is in first position when it gets picked back up, when it goes back. And then the question is just when will it go back? Right. How... I guess, how are you navigating that, you know, with with availability? In another example, another play we're we're working on at La Jolla is a a four-member cast. And we wanted to offer an actor. This actor had a show happening in New York that got canceled. And this show was really well-received and critically acclaimed and uh, was going to extend a million times and um, probably transfer to a bigger house. I don't know if it, it's a commercial show, so I can't, but but it's a, it's a biggie. Um, and so we had to make the offer. In order to essentially cancel this actor out of our thinking, we had to make the offer and say, is there a world in which that play goes back during these dates? If there's even a world where that might happen, we have to move on. If we know that those two months that that theater, the theater in New York, is definitely not putting that play back in during those two months. If we can say that with certainty, we'll keep, we'll, we'll make the offer. Like that's how we had. So we sort of had to, in a way, force the pass because we had to, we had to confirm that there was a possibility of that show because that show would be in first position. So it's a little of the, it's a little just about the sort of nuance of the conversation around it all, I guess. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, I want to um, use this as a segue to talk about self-tapes because you're you're looking at a lot of self-tapes right now. And I just wonder, um, th- the self-tapes, and let's talk specifically for theater right now, because um, you've just been watching these tapes for La Jolla. Um, and what, you know, you get uh, a submission from the actors, you get the initial round of tapes from who you send out, quote unquote, appointments to. And then... Um, what what percentage of those the first part of the question is what percentage of those do you then send on to the creative team and what are some of the things that uh actors do in those tapes that maybe are most effective or most helpful or that would be more of a factor for you to then send them on to the director or the creative team so the first question is what percentage do I send on? The answer is it really, really, and I'm sorry to be so vague. It does depend on the team I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So there are certain directors I work with that I know will not, do not have the time. I need to make sure that I'm sending um, a a lean list, a lean log of, of uh, candidates, you know, uh, auditions for these roles. Um, and then there are others. And in this case, this, this play that I just mentioned at La Jolla, the playwright specifically asked me, she said, Steph, I, I want to see anyone who sent in a tape. I'd really like to. And she's very generous. It's a very generous team. I appreciate that greatly. I respect it a lot. They want to see, and they, and, and it's also a very smart move because with new plays, um, they want to learn from seeing actors um, um, and the choices that they're making with that text. So, um, so I sent on everyone uh, in this particular example, but um, it really just depends on the team. And, and I think the thing that I can say makes the biggest difference, and this is particular to like early career actors versus 
actors who have been at it for a little while, it's a mistake not to pay attention to the project more. Who are the players? What's the theater? What is the work that these that these play that the playwright has done before? What is the work that the director has done before? What is that? What? How do you establish on your own as an actor what the tone of this thing might be? You don't have that knowledge necessarily from the casting director. You don't have, especially in the world of so many self tapes and not enough face to face time. You don't have necessarily have that knowledge from the breakdown, or even you know you can you can gather some stuff from the script, but then there's there's work that you can do as an actor to sleuth out what is the style of this thing, what is the mm-hmm. tone of this, how do I communicate in the tone that I think is aligned with the way this production will go, and then you make a choice that's embedded in that rather than making a choice that's embedded in the work that you, the actor, do best. It's a shift in thinking, right? That you are as the actor and actually a vehicle for the words, for the, for the play to be told, for the story to be told, for the production to be seen. That it is not a vehicle for you. Mm-hmm. Right. You're an interpreter of, of the material that you're given. Yeah. And especially because, you know, maybe if you're in a pre-screen with a casting director, the casting director can maybe adjust you into the tone um, in the room. But if you're doing a self-tape, you're not going to get that um, that feedback from the casting director. So you have to kind of sleuth out, like you said, as many of those extra little clues that you can find that might bring you closer on the barometer to, to you know, where that style is taking place. I wonder, um, do you encourage or do you ever get actors that submit two for a self-tape two different versions of the same scene with maybe two different takes on it and do you like that we we do i get it all the time and i i do like it if it's a genuine this could go either way so i tried it both ways um you know i totally appreciate that because you know how can you how do you know how do you if you if you haven't had the benefit of time in the room together uh, knowledge of the playwright knowledge of past productions knowledge of the director's work you can't sometimes it's really impossible to know um sometimes for t- i know we're talking about theater but for film and tv stuff you don't even get more than your scene so how could you know um right so i personally don't mind um uh, i yeah i don't mind at all getting that i i'm happy to watch both ways yeah, that's helpful. I think it's it's helpful. Um, let's just talk about like f- uh, film and television tapes. Um, you know, we just touch on that because it's I think it can be helpful. Like as an actor, I like to see, OK, who wrote the show and what else did they write? You know, did they also write Ozark? You know, because then I'm like, that's a specific world. Did they write for Inside Amy Schumer? Because that's another different world, you know? And so I think I think that's probably it probably also translates that way to to television to to really to finding that tone is that I totally totally agree and and it is the common misguided work of actors who have just finished training programs um to think that it's actually that it's really about how they make the most of a moment that moment in film and you know co-star tv world being two lines how do you make the most of those two lines and in fact that's probably putting way too much stress on what that part is there to do which for most co-star stuff is actually servicing those larger parts right so how do you stay in service to those larger parts um which is why i think casting directors like we 
the the running joke is we are, you know, I don't know if this works, but like the running joke is always like, we're like, you know, throw it away more, do less, do less, do less. Really what we're trying to do is actually focus the storytelling in that moment. Um, and that is directly, it seems to be disproportionate to the work that the actor has just gotten done doing in school, which is making the most of every moment. Right. You know, you, you train in school for the end of your career and then you get out and you're at the beginning of your career. And, and, and it's very hard. It's very, it's very hard for the actor to understand themselves in that world and, it's, and, and hard to understand what to do. Um, and sometimes just saying simplify doesn't, you know, certainly isn't enough. Um, for an actor who's actually trying to reckon with what what am I playing? What's this moment about? What am I what am I responding to? What's happening? What's the new information that I'm be get, being given? All in two lines, you know. And we're just like throw it away more. And actors are like ah. And and so yeah. So so going back to that tone. Well, who is the writer? What is the show? What's the tone of the show? You know, I, I if an actor isn't looking at when they get these auditions, at least two or three episodes, if not more. If you're lucky enough to be getting five or six of these auditions a week, you might not have time. But if you are, you know, if you just get one one a week, you have to go back and look at the episodes that have been shot. They will teach you what you need to know about how to do this audition. Absolutely. Do you think, um, you know, let's let's gear uh, uh, again towards maybe early early career actors. You know, I know, you know, when I first got out of school. I was going in for, you know, a lot of that co-star stuff, a lot of that, you know, waiter or um, police officer. But then, you know, sometimes I would get like a big pilot series regular audition and I was going to Meg Simon or, you know, going to those bigger, those bigger television offices. And I wonder, is there a difference in your mind in preparing for a co-star? We kind of touched on that. Um, it, but is there a difference between preparing for a co-star and then preparing if you're going in for, say, like a series regular uh, in a new pilot? For sure. Uh, well, is there a difference? I mean, in, in some ways, the preparation is similar. Theater is a medium of storytelling told through words and film is a medium of storytelling told through images. And so um, with film and, and on-camera auditions, you get less words. And so it, wh- what does that mean it's about? It's about it's about how you're responding to things. It's about when new information is being given. It's And so scoring your script based on when new information is being revealed, even as a first step, just a cursory step, when am I learning new information throughout this scene is such a helpful tool, whether it's a co-star or a guest star or a series regular. With the series regular work, there's in a good pilot, more to understand about backstory, history, what their wants are, what their desires are, what the main conflict is, how they communicate. There's just more to mine for, um, which, but ultimately living truthfully in that moment, how you live truthfully in that moment is the same work, whether you're asking if you need salt and pepper with your meal or if you have a series regular. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you get you get more... Um, do you think that there's like a freedom in bringing more of yourself to like a a regular series, regular role? Or, um, sometimes I wonder like, you know, for television, oh, do, you know, do they want, do they want me to just come in and be myself, you know, doing these lines or am I playing a character, you know, less, um, on television, sometimes I feel like, oh, they want, they're casting me for, to be myself or uh, does any of that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And two thoughts come to mind. Um, it's hard, I think, because you're training and you're training to play all these challenging roles. You're training to, uh, you know, play roles that are such a stretch for you. And then you get out and essentially you're asked to play roles that are just so close to who you are. It almost feels too easy. It feels unfun. It feels lame. It feels could feel lame. It could feel a little just like, what's the point? Um, and, and ironically, then there's, you know, then there's a lot of conversation about that being the moment where you sort of become typecast, that that's the thing that Robbie does, right? That Robbie gets called to do this thing all the time. Um, and yet, ultimately, what we're looking for is authenticity, um, an honest appraisal of the moment, and an honest living through the moment. Um, and so how do you square those things? I don't exactly know, except for I do happen to think personally that the best way into all material is um, is through what about it, where it hits you. Um, and that is, in fact, what makes my job fun. I can have, you know, 10 people come in for the same role and I see 10 different versions of that same scene because Robbie reads it and sees that that, that character really loves that other person. But, you know, Steve reads it and he sees that it's really about that character's anger and resentment at their brother. And those are two separate takes on the same scene. It's just they're coming at it from those different places. And I think to, um, to let, for that to be the foundation is, is your best laid foundation. Um, as opposed to what's the, how can I reach for a really fun foundation of how I build this scene? Um, going to what rings truest to you is um, going to be the most useful, the most honest, which is both work I like to cast and work I like to see. Like mm-hmm. that, that happens to appeal also to my taste is my mm-hmm. point. Um, but so, so yeah, so um, the sort of push-pull of cast of wanting it to be something that feels authentic to you and, and that feeling like, are they just, do they just want me to lay my own thing on this? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a combination. I think your own, how you, you know, you being you, being the foundation of those choices is probably pretty safe and okay. And even if that happens for the first several years out of school, that's also okay. That totally, yeah. I think that's very, very well said. Yeah, no, okay, really, that okay, makes okay. a lot of sense. Oh, sorry. The other thing I was going to say, if just to answer that question, is I was doing a movie, and I remember, this was a big movie, and I remember the director, um, <laughs> now that I, it's so crazy, wanting to make these offers to these actors, and it would be like, oh, can we make this offer to this actor, you know, for two weeks? He'll come on set. And I was like, well, it's not in the script. Like, what, what to do what? Come on set to do what? What is the part? <laughs> and it was like, no, no, we just know we want him somewhere. Like, we know we want him in this world. We don't know what he'll do. But the offer is for two, for two weeks for him to come on set. And I remember just thinking how crazy that was. But, like, it is an extension of what you're saying. They just knew this, you know, they knew this actor. He had auditioned for one of the roles. He wasn't right, but they knew they wanted him in the in the project and they were going to figure out where, but they just wanted to lock him down and protect themselves and have him on set for two weeks. And I, I you know, just imagine yourself as that actor getting that call and you're just like, I mean, sure, <laughs> I <Yeah>. guess. <laughs> you know, so it's the, it's the, it's the, positive and the weird of that question you know yeah totally 
Yeah. And, you know, that actor probably just really did his homework and knew the world that, you know, and like you said, the tone that he, you know, was coming into. Totally. Um, I want to, I want to, I do want to switch gears a little bit and I want to, um, I just want to back up because I, um, I love that you started, um, you, your degrees in directing, um, and you started, uh, doing more directing when you first started out your career, um, and then as well as teaching. And then I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and then how you found casting and why, um, and, and what brought you uh, to casting, how you landed there, and then kind of how that led you to being like, I would like to have my own office. I just think that's um, really special and cool. And I think, I know this is true for myself, but I think that there's a lot of people who are actors or are directors or and who think about, you know, sliding into different career paths within the industry that we're in. And sometimes it can be hard to talk about or you almost feel like oh I don't want to say it out loud but maybe I want to do something else within the industry and um, I think you've done it very well so I just I just think it'd be kind of cool to hear a little bit about that well that's so kind of you to say thank you it's it's something I have um, very uh, mixed feelings about um, about my own path um, the it's not an easy story it's not a linear story um, I came here. It's an interesting story. I came here to direct uh, to New York. I moved to New York the day before September 11th. So, oh my it, gosh! Yeah, it very mir- it mirrors what's happening right now in a lot yes, of ways. Yes, it does. Um, and uh, you know, the world changed, and everyone who I went to school with that we moved up here with my my um, roommate at the time and myself, everyone moved back, you know, everyone moved back home, you know, no one who could stay, no one knew what was happening. And so we stayed both because my whole family was here and I I sort of grew up here and my family is here. I was, we moved in with my sister to look for a place to live. So I, you know, I had a home base here. So there was sort of nowhere else to go. Um, This was home. But, and so, um, so six months later, I had tried directing and, um, you know, was getting these offers to direct on like the second floor of the bodega at 11 o'clock at night with like, you know, no budget and, you know, stuff that still happens and is kind of where really cool theater happens. But I was like, um, really just undone by everything. And my mentor, where I went to college, had asked me to look into space um, for their showcase and so I was looking into space. I found this really cool little theater called Center Stage. And that's where I found the Labyrinth Theater Company. And I really loved the mission and I really wanted to be involved. But this was a time where you didn't know, like email was just starting. You'd send an email and you were like, did it land? Has it been received? Is someone going to check it anytime soon? <laughs> um, and so you, I just didn't know. And I, so I pursued that. And finally, uh, one day, um, I, I hadn't heard back. And so finally, one day, I just showed up there. And I, I think of it really fondly now because I have grown into an age where I would second guess that a million times over now. But at the time, I was uh, brilliantly stupid enough to not care. And so that's where I started working. Um, it was my first job out of school. I got very, very lucky. And that's how I met the folks at the time at uh, Bernie Telsey's office. Um, which was at the time called Bernie Telsey Casting and now called Telsey and Company. Um, I met Will Cantler because I was the production assistant on um, Jesus Hop the Eight. Uh, no, it was Our Lady of 121st Street, Stephen Gerges's play, 
um, and Will was casting it. And that's how I, I, I met Will. And about a year and a half, I did a bunch of stuff with the lab. And about a year and a half later, um, I, I really wanted to learn how directors did it, how they, how they went through the process. And so casting came to mind. And there was an internship at, at um, Bernie's office. Um, and I applied for it and, um, you know, called again, just like, hey, I'd like to work here. Um, and Will was very kind and, uh, and, and, and hired me. Um, and I was there for six years and, uh, did a lot of stuff there, had a had, had the best experience of my life there. I mean, you know, um, to consider Bernie Telsey a mentor and Will Cantler and David Vicari, you know, I mean, these are just really huge, huge, uh, creative thinkers, innovators, um, strategists uh in our business and it was a it was such a great huge huge lesson it was a years long lesson for me um and it was during that time that I met and started working with Joe Mantello um in in a casting capacity and uh and so when I so at a certain point I just really got to the point where and I probably to be honest with you Robbie would make a different decision today um but at the time I had really thought that like I was missing directing. I was casting. It was full time. I was doing a lot of associate work on really great films, films that I consider some of the best work I've ever done. And like, I hold true to my heart to this day, but, um, I really missed directing. And so a couple of opportunities came up, one to assist, um, Joe Bonnie at the New York theater workshop, um, one to work on another one of Steven's plays, um, Stephen Gerges's plays. And I just thought it's sort of now or never. And why I say I wouldn't make this decision today is because I didn't realize at the time how much I really loved casting. I, I liked it a great deal. I was happy doing it, but it's almost like it fell into my lap. It was almost like stupidly, I say it was like too easy. Like not the casting is too easy, but that this, my life had, had unfolded in a way that was like, is this it? You know, yeah. and now I'm happily like, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I do know what you mean. So but I, do you think that there'd be part of you that if you didn't take those directing opportunities, if we'd be sitting here and, and it would be wondering. Totally. You know, well, maybe I maybe who knows what would have happened if I, you know, pers you know, went down that that path, you know, a hundred percent. There's no question. And then you could write an Adina Menzel musical about <laughs> based on sliding doors <laughs> about your life in casting and directing <laughs> i will say i did not do very many musicals when i was at bernie's i my first session was um seeing kids for the musical cry baby and mark i saw Brokaw that musical on broadway he was mark Brokaw was so lovely as these kids came in and he would shake all of their hands and i was terrified i was like i'm gonna mess this the kids and Craig Burns, who I adore, had it all prepped for me. I I was the person running the room, um, but I still thought there's I'm gonna have to I'm gonna mess this up. Luckily, I did not. Um, but I didn't do many other musicals there. Um, anyway, so you so, so you yeah. left Bernie's, and and I ended up doing some directing, assistant directing, and and uh, here's what I learned very quickly about directing. Um, I love it. I don't think I'm great at it. I am too impatient for it. Um, I'm, I'm more of a producer 
So I am more of a person who connects other people to get their best work done. Um, and, and less of a person who can sit, you know, I mean, one of the greatest lessons I learned from Joe watching Joe Mantello and Joe Bonnie, but, but Mantello work was just allowing actors to find their way to the solution and the patience that that takes is, uh, it's like, I don't have it in me. I was, I don't have the gene. So I, I learned that very quickly. And this idea, you know, this idea that we could go into a room for eight hours and sit in that space of that, of that play for, for eight hours a day. I just couldn't, I just, um, I wanted to move it forward too quickly. And it, it is the thing that makes me good at my job in casting and producing, but it's, it is not, um, I don't think a, a skill for a director necessarily. It certainly comes up in directing, but not as much as the patience piece does. And, um, I just didn't. And so, and there's also a sense, a real sense of insecurity that that these these plays that ask these great questions that was I going to ever honor them the way that they needed? And mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that makes me feel better is that casting is so much more collaborative, that in casting, we can decide, we decide collectively on a cast. You know, we decide, we sit and we talk and it's the writer and the director and the music director and the, you know, and the producer and the theater and the artistic director and casting, we all decide together. And so it feels like something you get to build together versus, and directing has a two, certainly, you know, the collaboration between directors and designers and between directors and the theaters that they're working. But the essential questions of the play really, I think, falls to the director in a way that I never felt like I could honor fully. Um mm-hmm. And there were people who could just do it better and more. And, um, and so, um, so the push pull of that, the getting done with a play and then just like not having work lined up, that felt really earth shattering to me. Like I was in my late twenties. I just couldn't, I did, I hated that feeling. Um, and I'm sure you mentioned Marsha Milgram Dodge was on and, and she was talking about how directors get work. And I think there's like a big piece of this where directors are attached to projects and they do the footwork of calling producers and saying, hey, you know, I have this property. I'd love to talk about, you know, collaborating on it. And I just didn't have that. Um, I think a lot of that, sometimes some of that comes out of being in grad school, in grad school programs. A lot of that comes from like the sort of and and community stuff. And I just wasn't, I didn't have it. Um, I had, yeah. And so, and so... So I would go back and forth between the directing, the assistant directing, and casting. I don't know how it happened. I was lucky that it happened. Um, I felt very lucky. And also I knew that every tur- at every turn that I was choosing directing over casting or casting over producing, like I was losing some footing. Mm-hmm. So this idea, I mean, this idea that you can have a career in many different paths in the business is true and wonderful, um, but it, there's a cost to it. That cost is getting to do many things in the business. The cost of that is 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 having that very full and not singularly directed career. Right. And that's so I always, super well put. Yeah. And that's okay. And people c- should choose that. And and I did choose that for for a long time. Um, and so it's, so that was my work at the hangar theater. I was the associate artistic director, the interim artistic director. And that was just during the summer. And then over the fall and spring, there was a lot of prep work, but I was in the city and I could cast. Um, but I couldn't sign on to work at a major office and cast because I knew that my summers would be, I'd be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, you know, you start to cobble together this career of a myriad different things. Um, and that, that's what like, that's what like 
my early 30s was. Um, and I loved that time in my life. I think about it super fondly, but I know that the cost of that um, was real too. Mm-hmm. So, so when I was, um, so then I got a, a call about a job at Barrington stage company in the Berkshires, um, of Western mass. And it was, um, helping to run their second stage, producing second stage stuff, doing director of literary, um, not casting at all because one of their associate artists, um, at Barrington is Pat McCorkle and she's been casting there forever. Um, wonderfully so. And so, um, and so I took this job, which, which was going to be in and out of the city, but it was really theater focused. Um, and I had great experiences there. I worked with Bill Finn on a lot of new musicals, um, and, and Julie Boyd who runs the main stage and, and, but I was really on the second stage. I didn't, I wasn't doing, you know, main stage musicals. I was not, I didn't, I don't know what was happening at Man of La Mancha. I was doing the little play, you know, in the, (laughs) the black box down in the second stage. But, um, and I loved it and I loved it. Um, I didn't love life in the Berkshires. Um, I didn't, I found it really hard. It was one of those really hard winters. I was there two seasons. It was one of those really hard winters where there was like, um, you know, a crazy snowstorm like every week. Um, I know it well. I grew up in West Springfield, just down the road. So I know those, I know those hard winters and I, I agree with you. Oh, it was so hard because when it's nice out, it's beautiful, but you're, I'm chained to a theater for 24 hours a day from April through October. Right. And then you've got one nice month, October, November, which I was usually itching to get back to New York because we were, you know, in production and I missed all of my people in New York and then it was winter. So it just didn't work. Um, and, uh, so I came back to New York and, I came back to New York and started working with a producer who was trying to build his own, um, he, he was building his own work at the time, um, his own company, and wanted me on to help him produce, but also wanted me to help cast and uh, help cast where it was appropriate. And it's a little bit it's similar to the stu- old studio model um, in LA. Like that's the best example I could give, but it's not something that that I see happen like with theaters in New York, even commercial theaters, like even if the same producer, you know, Scott Rudin often hires Bernie Telsey, even if that happens a million times, Bernie Telsey, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think anyone in Bernie's office is on Scott Rudin Productions payroll, right? Mm -hmm. So like that formula is slightly different. And so we, I agreed to it to see what would happen. And I stayed there with him um, and, and still share office space with him for a few years, but the casting work really picked up outside of his projects. Um, I got, uh, offered to do a film, uh, that I worked on that then won all the festival awards, very happy for it. I got offered to do a, just a bunch of different projects and the theater stuff started picking up and it just became enough that it was like, oh, okay, maybe it's time to sort of hang a shingle, um, and do this. But I knew to your bigger point, I knew at that moment that if I was going to do that, I would have to put everything else down that, that, and I was okay with that. I was okay with that because at the time I had done the sort of cobble together, live, you know, try different things. And ironically, I think the community is opening up to more and more of that where a person can do many different things. I don't know if it's because there's so many people who write their own work now for the, you know, work for themselves or, um, or why it's become more open to that, but it feels like it has become more open to that. But I knew that if I chose to, you know, start a business, that that would have to be my focus. Um, and it has been since then. So cool. That's so special. I mean, that so resonates with me. And, and I, I think 
there's something that feels in the last few years or that feels like people maybe have more permission to, you know, be an actor, but also, you know, say they want to write their web series or they, you know, I think we also have more high profile people also doing, you know, many different things. You know, Joe Mantello, who you mentioned is like an idol of mine because I think he's, I can't tell you if he's a better director or an actor because he's so brilliant at both. And, and he just decided that he's going to do both and that he's still going to do it. And, um, and I think that gives, that empowers me to say, yeah, like I, I'm an actor and I'm 110% pursuing that path, but I'm also pursuing, you know, um, a directing path and want to assist and do things. And, um, and I think, uh, the more people that say that, and I'm so happy that you just shared this because I think it just, um, I think a, a lot of us are waiting for permission. And I think hearing, hearing stories that people did, um, did many different things. And then I think the thing that is ultimately what's oozing out of you, that is the thing that you are just, you know, um, it's no accident that you just started getting all this casting work and then it led to your own office. It's, it's because, that's you know you're you're so good at it and that's and other people were recognizing it and it's kind of like that path that just kind of grabbed you you know and and it was the thing you were that you um that you were missing a little bit so so I love that uh, totally totally and I and I I also just uh, perspective and and sort of all things full circle I'm very happy having having an office that does mostly um nonprofit you know the the really cool good theater that happens at Soho Rep at the Atlantic Theater for a New Audience here in the city, La Jolla Arena State. I am happy to have this smaller office that does these good plays, you know, when, when, and just when this, when we shut down, we lost um, a play called The Paper Dreams of Harry Chin by Jessica Wang that was happening at Indiana Rep, um, Wolf Play um, at, at Soho Rep. Uh, Gannett, a new play by Will Eno that Oliver Butler was directing for Theater for a New Audience. And there was a fourth that went down. Oh, we had As Much As I Can, which was this new play that's uh, happening in different cities all over the country, bringing awareness to um, the black community uh, with AIDS um, that went down. There's one more. But we had these, you know, great plays that were happening in tech, in previews, in performances that, that had to close their doors. Those are the plays I love. Those are the plays I love seeing. So it's, I guess, in closing, it's no accident that I ended up getting the kind of work that is the work I like to see, too. Yeah, we, <laughs> at least I like to think that we all end up where we're supposed to. And, um, you know, if you keep being a good person and having a good reputation and working hard is, is so much of it. I'm just interested in, I think every casting director has a different answer for this question, but I think it's helpful to hear, um, helpful at least for actors to think about it. So when you you have an initial uh, meeting with a with a director for you know a play and if you think of a play that you know you want to use as a specific example um and then coming up with your list of actors that you're going to bring in for each role in that play you know i know the amount of actors you bring in is probably dependent upon the theater and how much money they have for uh you know to have a rehearsal audition studio um but what what goes into like curating your list of of actors and how do you find those actors i i wonder if it's like 
you know, obviously agent submissions you go through, you're required by equity to do an EPA, um, you know, actors you find because you've been teaching or, you know, and kind of like how you how you put together that list um, and where you usually where you usually find those actors. Yeah. Uh, where, where we find the actors is, um, seeing a lot of theater, Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of theater, going to readings, staying caught up on things, watching TV, you know, watching shows that shoot in New York. I, I've said this before publicly. I think Dave Cap has the wonderful casting director. Dave Cap has the best taste. Um, and so watching shows like New Amsterdam is helpful to me getting to see actors on that show. Um, uh. I think he was part of the Tupper semester. That he was my earlier, audition right? teacher. I know him yeah. very well. Yep. Yeah. So um, get, going to see a lot of theater, going to see a lot of readings, shows that shoot here, just staying caught up that way. How I curate the list is really based on when we first get into a conversation with the director, we talk about, you know, what the what we talk with the playwright as well. What was the impetus for the play? What's the history of the play? What have we learned? You know, sometimes and so then, you know, the team will talk about, well, we had a reading and actually what we learned is this character works best when they're 10 years older. Um, you know, a good example of this is one of the plays at La Jolla. There's a character who's, I mean, if I read you this breakdown, it, it's, it's uh, perfect and also completely vague. Um, you know, the character is everything and nothing. Um, uh, wise, uh, an age of wisdom, not years, right? Like it's just it, nothing that's that's actually practically helpful. But then when you drill down on that with the team, and they say, "Well, we found it actually works better when it's a female, someone who's female identifying in their fifties or sixties." Um, okay, great. So then we're going to focus there. But then there could be some really fun outliers. There could be some really fun outliers when it's something like that, where it's like, "Well, here's what we think it is, but we're not actually sure." And that happens a lot with new plays. Um, where, you know, the idea is that it's this, but we're actually not really sure. Um, another good example is Christopher Chen's play Passage that we did for Soho Rep last year. Every character was a different letter. And um, most of the time it really was, we identified that we thought which of the eight tracks would be female identifying and which would be um, non-binary uh, and which would be male identifying. But but that was open. And so for each of those, we made lists, but then we thought of who the outliers are, who the, who the people that are not the um, clear choice based on what we've determined the appropriate uh, or the ideal age and um, gender might be, might be, is the key there. Um, I would say that's happening in 75% of the work that we do, that it's not actually the characters are written and they're not actually specifically, you know, gender oriented or age oriented. Um, and that's so that's fun for you, right? Super fun and also super broad. So we have to make sure. So then you drill down on what's the essence of this work? What was the essence of what's the essence of the character? What's the tone? What's the goal? What kind of story is this? It, you know, what is the language? What's the music of it? What kind of musician do we need? Um, uh, and then that helps determine how, how we, that helps to determine how we curate um, that list. Mm -hmm. And then, so when you get the submissions from all the agents and you're, you know, you're looking through all those like little thumbnails of actors, is it like, oh, I've seen, I saw that actor in a show like a few weeks ago, I'm going to bring them in and... You know, is it, is it, you know, is that kind of how it works or I, I mean, or you probably also made a list, you make your lists kind of before you even get the submissions that come in. Um, I, I don't know if just, it, it's, um, 
it's always in- interesting for me to hear kind of you know how it all you know how it all takes place well so like um with some a lot of our shows we've learned lately in the past couple of years that a lot of them they we end up doing a workshop before the show so they want to do like a week-long workshop and that happens i don't know 60 percent of the time now where we get a call and so let's say the show let's say we got a call today end of april and the show the dates were i mean in a year where we weren't in a global pandemic yeah. and and the dates were like november 1st there would be a um a workshop in August, right? This is a good example of dates. Um, a workshop in August and then rehearsals begin November. We wouldn't put a breakdown out now. There would be no reason to. It's for six months from now. We've got a workshop, all of that. So what, So then it's only relying on our lists. But And then we go through that and then, you know, it, the big question is, well, are we going to cast people for both the workshop and the production or are we using this production to learn more about the play? Like, do we want to leave ourselves open so that um, if something changes dramatically with the role over that workshop that we're prepared. And that's a question that the producers weigh in on, obviously, um, for a whole host of reasons. So then depending on that answer, either, well, either way, we come up with lists then. Um, that usually doesn't involve the agents. Um, it, it does involve going into, you know, all of the shows that we've seen going into our lists. When we read it, who do we have in our heads? You know, um, in our office, we talk about like who is in our, you know, in our um, imagination when we read it. And I, Stephanie, need to have people in my head when I read something. I need to think about it through that the actor's voice. So I have a fun oh, time like pre-casting yeah. and so then by the end i'll be like well I, I was thinking of my pal steve jones but it's so not steve by the end of it because like you didn't know you know right um and so that's always a fun little thing but um yeah and so uh, that's how we sort of make our initial list and then once we put the breakdown once we release the breakdown we get submissions back Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not as great. You know, it depends on obviously sometimes the project's great. Sometimes it's not as great timing wise, financially, whatever. And then we get on the phone with the agents that we have really good relationships with. I'm very lucky. You know, I have good relationships with a lot of agents. I I think I like to think. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I, I enjoy hearing their ideas and their feedback and the, and the agents that we have great relationships with have, um, have and make the time to read the work that we're working on you know, so that they can think outside the box. That's something I learned from Bernie early on was, was, um, really taking, taking the time to think outside the box about things. Um, and so, you know, even when the playwright is super clear on what they think the character description is just taking a moment, not to question it, but just to think of what that, what the intention there is. And if that is actually, or, or if it's just like, well, I had imagined it this way, so it's going to be this, um, versus other ideas you can you can suggest that have the same result but look completely different Mm -hmm. Um, that was something that I learned from Bernie and I learned from how Bernie connected with agents you know he had a great he's got obviously great relationships with agents but they would call and he would just get on the phone and just chat with them about their thoughts about the piece and they would suggest new ideas and things that we hadn't thought of and so um, that's something I've held on to yeah, I, that's never really crossed my mind. But the collaboration with agents, you know, everyone has their taste and everyone has. Um, uh, um, it's not a clinical business. We're all emotional. It's subjective. We have our tastes. And it and it's interesting to be able to collaborate with everyone, not just I didn't even think about collaborating with agents, but, you know, collaborating with directors, agents and, you know, and who they have. And yeah, that's really important i imagine well 
Right, because we're all in the business. We're all sort of interpreters of story, and 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 so the agents have their own responsibility to that and to their actors. And their actors, you know, if their if their relationships with those actors are good, they know that those actors work, you know, ostensibly better than I do, and would be able to speak more towards things, or you know, that I might I I just might not have thought about. So yeah, that that is an important relationship and one that we really value in our office of making sure that our relationship with the agents are. Um, as collaborative and collegial as they can be. Mm -hmm. Stephanie. Robbie, here we are. I know, I know. And and then here we are are. talking through a computer. Um, Maybe someday we'll have a great conversation face to face. But, um, But this has been super super helpful and um enlightening and i feel like i forgot we were even like recording because i'm i'm just like oh, okay great this is also interesting um oh my gosh. i'm so happy thank you so much for talking so much about your path i think that was like just super inspiring to me and and i think this goes without saying that like you are so good at your job because you were a director because you we're a producer because you did all these other things and value, you know, value what a director is going through in an audition process, you know, um, and, and valuing what a producer's constraints are, or, you know, I think, I think that's, that's very cool that I, uh, as a takeaway that I'm taking, you know, that I'm thinking about is, um, just how important it is to, that you did these different things and that it, it all works together. You know, it's not like you're not using those skills today in what you do. Oh, not at all. I use them all the time, you know, working with actors all the time. And thank you for saying that. It's very kind of you. Um, but, it, and I think it's true that, that, that having that sense of um, understanding, you know, if this is, this might be a little far fetched, but I remember for the brief time in college that I wanted to act and it was brief <laughs> and unsuccessful. Um, oh. um, I, I remember I would read plays and if I didn't understand just how it particularly like John Patrick Shanley's work comes to mind, how um, a character can want something and do the exact opposite thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's true of many playwrights. Um, I don't know why John comes to mind, but. Um, that's human behavior, right? Like we want something and we do the exact opposite thing. If that wasn't human behavior, you know, diets would work all the time. Yes. <laughs> right? Like as an example, I want to lose weight and here I am eating a cake with a spoon. So like it doesn't always, um, that's how human behavior, that is the complexity of human behavior. And I remember when I was a, an actor and I would read these plays and not understand them, I would I would question them. I would question the play. Why is the action not aligned with the desire of the actor? Um, And it wasn't until later in my life that I realized like the question is just what's, what's prompting that? What is, what is um, urging that desire on? Why? The question isn't if that's right. The question is why that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so to try and actually see that through the eyes of what the playwright wanted, like you're saying, as a casting director, I have to look at what the producer might need, or I have to look at what the help the actors in the, um, by understanding what their process might be. As an actor, to try and question what the playwright is trying to do in the moment without questioning the moment itself, but just trying to question the why, like what's driving that versus why is this in the scene? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it, it for, I think it's asking an actor to have an inherent innate sense of trust in the work that they're getting ready to do, that you start from a place of trusting what's on the page and then finding your own pathway by asking, why is this happening? How can I make sense of this for me? Not for an audience, but for me, um, I think is such an important part of acting. And I think it's a really important part of auditioning. Um, and, and paradoxically, sorry to go off like this, paradoxically. No, it's great. Actors, they want to make sense of young, early career actors want to make sense of everything. They want to make sense of everything. They want to make sure everything's understood. And that's not how human behavior works. So to actually allow for a scene to live in the messy space of not knowing it feels hard for an actor to do. They feel like they're not doing something. They're, they're not doing all of the things by letting it be unclear. But if there are clear choices driving the unclear, that is right. You know, that is, that can be very, very right. And in fact, to try and make it too clean is, could be very, very wrong. I think that's a trap I know I fall into is trying to make it too clean. Um, right. And um, Elaine Stritch told Betty Buckley once after she saw her in a concert um, and Elaine went up to Betty and she said, darling, you need to put an olive in your martini. And I always think of that as an actor, like just making it a little dirtier, like just unknown, um, living, living in that uncertainty, but making a choice about it. That's right. That's exactly right. So. I loved that. I loved that. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much. This was so fun. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I hope anything I said was useful and producible. Uh, it, it was all helpful. Thank you. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!